Shalom, and thank you for listening to the weekly teaching from Nachamu Ami. It's our honor that you've chosen to participate virtually, and we hope that this lesson will be an inspiration in your daily walk. Don't miss a single teaching. Be sure to download the Nachamu Ami app by visiting our website at www.makeandmessianic.com and clicking the Download the App button in the top left corner. Enjoy the message. Last week we talked about despite the readings and confusion and things out of context that Hebrews has an incredibly powerful message embedded within it and it's not even that hard to get to but we do need to understand the context because knowing the history will help us know why it was written and what it is saying which is what I want you to know okay so there are some fundamental questions that we need to ask And I just need to go back to the beginning of this. There we go. Some fundamental questions that you need to know in order to understand the history of Hebrews. We need to know who wrote it. We need to know to whom it was written. We need to know to where it was sent, and sent will make sense in a few weeks, maybe next week. We need to know when it was written, and all of that needs to point us, most importantly, to why, oh why, was this book written that has caused such massive confusion? Why was it written? And so our ultimate focus, really the most important thing we're going to get to is the why. Because the, the, more than the history of authorship or audience or any of those things, the historical context of why matters most. And here's why. Here is a book, is every, everyone knows what a, what a New Testament or an Old Testament introduction is, right? Have you ever read one? Is this, the book, the name sounds introductory. It's anything but. It's just the, it's the theological textbooks that help you understand all these things we're looking at, right? This is a very good one by Donald Guthrie. Old, actually, it's from the 60s, and, but it's, it's still very good. Here's what he says about the importance of understanding and knowing the context of Hebrews. The epistle raises several problems, which we're going to get to today, Okay. And even if no dogmatic conclusions can be reached, these problems and the the importance of careful examination of them cannot be exaggerated since they affect both the approach to the epistle as a whole and the understanding of the argument. Moreover, its modern relevance clearly depends on a right appreciation of its original setting. Okay? Now, that's a great introduction to Hebrews. Here's a book called The New Testament, Its Background, Growth, and Content by Dr. Bruce Metzger. Is anyone familiar with Bruce Metzger? This is also relatively old. But let me give you his his reason why it's important to know Hebrews. Now, Bruce is the New Testament. He is the author of 25 books. He is a Princeton Theological Seminary professor of New Testament language. He was the chairman of the Revised Standard Version Bible Committee and a member of the Board of Managers of the American Bible Society. Now, this is old, so he's probably not, I'm not sure if he's alive anymore, but he was those things. So what does that tell you? That tells you that Bruce Metzger is one smart dude who knows the Word of God. 
Let me tell you what Bruce has to say. Let's read his why in terms of Hebrews. Well, first of all, it's based on conditions of a new covenant which supplants the old covenant. Well, that's actually true, but when? Also, the Levitical sacrifices which are not really effective. Wrong. What are the Levitical sacrifices effective for? Cleansing and ritual purity. That's a wrong statement. In a last magnificent admonition, the author of Hebrews contrasts the gloom and terror of life under Mosaic law. Gloom and terror. But he goes on to say, and these are some of my favorites, Since the author's why, he calls it his chief purpose, is to show that the Jewish modes of worship are obsolete and ineffective in developing the theme of superiority of Christianity over Judaism, the author is urging that Christ and his work are superior to anything that Judaism can offer. Now, We spent some time last week talking about how wrong it is, according to the Acts community, to assume that Jewish worship was obsolete, or is even obsolete now, or will be obsolete in the Messianic age and beyond. So, my point in contrasting these two guys, and if you read Donald Guthrie's introduction further, obviously there's things that would, that would support the traditional interpretation of Hebrews, but, but this is what I'm saying. I'd like to start with the why. Why was the book written? But we can't start with why, because these foundational questions of who, to whom, to where, when, they are going to inform our why. So, we're going to end with why. It's a great book, by the way, called Start With Why. If you've ever heard of it, it's about business and developing a great vision. So that's a commercial for Start With Why. But we're going to end with why. And we're going to end with why next week, because this information today is going to take a little bit of time to develop. You with me? That's the introduction. Today, who wrote the book of Hebrews? Call it out to me. Okay, good. Thank you. Uh, Thank you, Roger, for the consensus opinion. This is good to have. Every name that was shouted out is in the midst, is in the mix. I didn't hear anyone say Paul, though, which there are many, 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 many good arguments, supposedly, as to why Paul is the author of Hebrews. However, here's the actual answer to who wrote the book of Hebrews. Are you ready for it? How's your Hebrew? Aniloyodea. I don't know, but I'm in very good company. Many of the early church fathers, including uh, 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 Origen, Eusebius, maybe, I think. I can't remember exactly. There's so many. Many thought that Paul wrote the book, and as a matter of fact, the King James Bible translates in the introduction or the heading of Hebrews, it says the the epistle, right? 
the epistle of Paul the apostle. Why would that be? Well, because there's such a thing as translator bias. There's such a thing as theological bias. There's an idea that, well, it kind of got grouped in with some of other, Paul's other letters, so Paul must have wrote it. Let's be sure about one thing. The consensus opinion is that Paul did absolutely not write the book of Hebrews. Okay? The style, the language, the, the, the theological emphasis, they're very different. Now, it was considered, as I just said, Pauline by, by some early folks. Origen died in 235, I think. Origen, he, his assessment was the thoughts are very Pauline, but the writing is not. And so here's Origen's quote, which really should dictate our, our question. But who wrote the epistle? God only knows certainly. However, that would be boring if I left it with I don't know. So let me throw out some other ones. We've heard Luke. We've heard Clement. We've heard Apollos from Martin Luther. Luke was suggested by John Calvin. But Tertullian, who is one of the first recorded sources for talking about this, mentioned somebody that I didn't hear anyone say. Any guesses? James is also in there, but that's not it. Priscilla is, a, is also as a possible woman who wrote it, but still no one, so that makes my job fun. Clement of Rome wrote a very similar epistle. Now, Clement was writing first Clement around 95, okay, 95. And he wrote a, an epistle that was very similar to Hebrews. However, there are more stylistic and creative differences than similarities. And this could be because in Clement's possession, right in front of him, he had the book of Hebrews, which was serving to him as a reference. I want to show you somebody else that no one's mentioned. Acts 4.36. Now Joseph, a Levite of Cyprus, also called Barnabas by the apostles, which translated means son of encouragement. I didn't hear anyone say Barnabas. Let's talk about Barnabas for a second. Because Barnabas, first of all, who knew Barnabas was a Levite? Where do Levites work? What are Levites familiar with in the temple? Sacrificial system and the temple. What is primarily the center of emphasis in the book of Hebrews? The sacrificial system and the temple and the workings therein. But there's more. Hebrews 13 says, I urge you, brethren, bear with this word of exhortation. That word exhortation, you know what it is? Paraclesis in Greek. Exhortation or encouragement. Let's go back, actually, and look at Acts 4.36 again. If I can press the button the right way. You see this right here where it says, which translated means son of Paraclesis 
encouragement. So we have a very interesting connection here that Barnabas is known to be an encourager, a Levite from Cyprus who very, very possibly could have sent this letter of encouragement to the community in Hebrews. There is one problem, and that is in this text right here where Barnabas is speaking to, or I say Barnabas, you see what I just did there? Subliminal. Barnabas wrote the book of Hebrews. He says, how shall we escape if we ignore so great a salvation? This salvation which was first announced by the Lord was confirmed to us by those who heard him. Stay with me. I was going to just cut this out of the message, but I'm going to say it anyway. What is an apostle? An apostle is one who heard directly from the Lord, received their calling there. The shaliach, one sent out by God. Barnabas is referred to in Acts at least once, probably twice or more, Acts 14.4 if you want to check me, as an apostle. Okay, So there's a problem because if it was confirmed to us by those who heard him, that would mean that Barnabas was not the direct recipient of his call to ministry. Therefore, he would not be an apostle, but the book says he was an apostle. So Damien, there's the hole in your stupid theory. It's not Barnabas. Hang on. There are many times when I'm talking in here that I say, we. We have distinctions within this community, Jews and Gentiles, men and women. And for instance, even last week I said, The difficulty with something about Hebrews is that for people like you and I, not theologians, not professors, regular people who read the book, if someone, read the Bible, if someone was listening to my message 2,000 years later, and I said what I said, the assumption will be, well, who is he? Why is he talking? He's just another one of them. Not that being one of you is bad. I am one of you. But still, I get up here and teach. I'm the rabbi of the congregation. Someone could hear that and say, well, he's not the rabbi. But I am the rabbi. You see, you can't take one thing that someone says and throw everything out about it. So this, to me, is not sufficient evidence that Barnabas was not an apostle and was not speaking and writing the book of Hebrews. So I just wanted to throw that in there to get that out of the way. That's called reasonable doubt. And I was going to go to law school, but I decided to argue with religious people instead. (laughs) We can't build a foundation on these very couple of points that I've made to you, but I'll make a couple more regarding Barnabas later. But for now, we just must leave the question, I don't know. Someone wrote it. I'm tended to put, I tend to put some weight on Barnabas. Who did he write it to? Hint. The letter to the Hebrews. Hello, McFly! But it's not quite that simple because in the earliest versions of the Greek text, we don't see that showing up. We don't see it. There is nothing in there. Who was it written to? The problem is 
it doesn't in the early text spell out that it was a letter to the Hebrews. Okay, that is there later. But let's say, let's dig into this. And, and let me say at the outset, of course there is no consensus as to who the letter was written to. There are questions and arguments about whether or not it was written to, to Jewish Christians, that is Messianic Jews, if it was written to Gentiles, or if it was written to a mixed community of Jews and Gentiles. But let me say this, the idea of a, of a book like Hebrews being sent to a strictly Gentile community is kind of hard to imagine, isn't it? with the emphasis on temple architecture and temple terms and sacrifices. And and even there's a lot of midrashic argument in this book, okay? So to say that it's written just to Gentiles, I think we would have to cut that out immediately. But my suggestion, along with Lancaster and Guthrie, and a somewhat general consensus is that this author is communicating with a specific community of Jewish believers. Specific community. Okay, now within that community, very likely are God-fearers. Very likely are Gentiles who have come into the faith. So it's, it's a mixed community, but primarily, and I will talk about this community in just a second, primarily, I believe it's a Jewish community. Now, these readers were well-versed in Torah, prophets, Jewish teaching of the time, mystical, midrashic, rabbinic teaching, but even more specifically, they were acquainted with the temple, the tabernacle, and even more specifically, there is a particular community in mind. In other words, it's not just, hey, send this to Israel and distribute it. How can we arrive there? Well, we can look in the text. Hebrews 10.32 reminds us and tells us, remember the former days when after being enlightened, you endured a great conflict of suffering, partly by being made a public spectacle through reproaches and tribulations, by becoming sharers with those who are so treated. This is somebody who is particular, a particular community. Former days, we'll learn about that a little bit more in just a second in the surrounding times and next week. But this group has been through some stuff together. God is not so unjust as to forget your work and the love which you have shown toward his name and having ministered and still ministering to the saints. They are in some kind of thing and have been, okay? They demonstrated love and care for one another. Now, that sounds familiar to me from another book that we read in the Bible about a fledgling Jewish community of believers. Where might that be found? I would suggest in the book of Acts, and we'll jump back there in a sec, okay? But the author is well acquainted with this community. We've already looked, well, in chapter eight, chapter 13, he knows their leaders. He has the faith in their leadership to tell them to submit to their leaders. He also desires to come back and be with them. He wants to be restored to this community and come and spend time with them. So he's very well acquainted with the community. And as we saw in in 2.3, Hebrews 2.3, he knows the story of their salvation. He knows how they came to be believers. So to say that this is just sent to some general region somewhere, it's not logical. It doesn't fit with what he actually says, okay? So who was it written to? I will say with relative confidence 
that it was written to a specific group of Jewish believers within this temple world. Where was the letter sent? If it was a community, where was this community? Guesses? I would say Jerusalem at a minimum, Israel, I mean, Israel at a minimum. Again, because of the audience's awareness and knowledge of the temple system. These would be people who were regularly interacting at the temple. But knowing what we know about who wrote it and to whom, the answer of where should be obvious, as was just said. Some, are you ready for a surprise? I want to throw a little surprise in. There's no consensus about where the audience of Hebrew was, Hebrews. Some say Alexandria, some say Rome. I say, along with other people, Israel. To a people familiar with the temple, communal worship. And there's an even older book by a guy named B.F. Westcott, the Epistle to the Hebrews, and he notes that the church fathers, the patristic evidence, that the term the Hebrews was often applied to the community in Jerusalem. Okay? Community in Jerusalem. How's your history lesson going so far? Are you with me? Okay, good. There is also evidence in this community that we're talking about of an approaching crisis. And as we dig into the history, that surrounding when I'm going to tell you this was written, we'll see that this was a very, very dangerous time to be alive and to be a believer, Jew or Gentile. So they had something that that looked like it was coming up, something not good. And Hebrews 10.32, again, which we've already looked at, mentions something unique. Recall the former days when, after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with suffering, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and afflictions, sometimes partners with those who treated, for you had compassion on those in prison. You joyfully accepted the plundering of your property. I want to take you back to Acts chapter 7. You know who's in Acts chapter 7? Stephen. And in Acts 7, uh, Acts, oh, I put, I put Hebrews, it's Acts. Then they cast him out of the city, him as Stephen, and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul, also known as, although he never had an official name change. He's still Saul, but that's another whole message. Hebrew Acts 7 continues into the next chapter, which is chapter 8. And Shaul approved of his execution. Now think back to Hebrews 10, what we just read that this community had endured. There arose on that day a great persecution against the church, it says, it's ecclesia, the body. Where? In Jerusalem. And they were scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen, made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the body and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Now, go back here. What happened to this people? They were, they were dealing with prisoners. They were dealing with seizure of property. They were being dealt, they were being treated 
badly. And Paul was not the only one who was persecuting the early believing community. You with me? There's a similarity here in the author of Hebrews' choice of words when we compare it to what is actually happening in Acts. So I do not think by any stretch of the imagination that, it's a, that it is a stretch to say that the recipient of the letter is the Acts community, which has grown and developed over a period of time and is now in Jerusalem facing an oncoming difficulty that's something similar to what they've already been through. Because what comes after Hebrews chapter 10? Hebrews 11. What is Hebrews 11? The hall of fame of faith, right? Starting with the Torah's heroes with a special and particular emphasis on Abraham and Moshe. So again, talking to a Jewish audience if we're, if we're looking at this logically. And what is he telling them? These guys went through it. You have to hold fast. Even though things look bad, your faith, and you need to hold fast. And what they're going to hold fast to is the emphasis and focus of the entire book, which we haven't gotten to yet. But I think you can see the pieces of this come together very clearly. And lest we, lest we forget, let me give you one last piece of evidence for my Barnabas thought. We've already looked at this scripture in Acts 4.36. Joseph, a Levite of Cyprian birth, was also called Barnabas by the apostles, which translated means son of encouragement, and who owned the tract of land, sold it, and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. Where was Barnabas in relation to this early Acts community? He was a part of them. I thought that was a pretty, like, nice, conclusive thing. He was a part of the community. He knows them. He's known them for years, decades. But we'll begin to see hints of the why embedded in the author's reminder to this community to keep the faith. So when, last question, when? When was it written? Well, that's related to where and who for sure, but it ties in very strongly to the why next week. And Last surprise, last little twist I'm going to throw at you, I promise you. There's no consensus on when the book of Hebrews was written. But there are some logical indicators. As I told you in the beginning, the book of Clement was writ written, first Clement, in 95. There's quotes from Hebrews in that book. Thus, we know that the latest the book of Hebrews could have been written was 95 because we see it. But that's way late, by my opinion and my assessment, because the big question that really, that really must be asked is, was the temple still standing? Your, your answer is? Right, we're, we're, we're logically considering what the book says, okay? There are a number of easy little things that we can look at. And if it, it by the way, just for, for detail, 
if the temple is still standing, that dates the book of Hebrews pre what year? 70, pre 70. So 95, Clement's talking about it, but 70, we're jumping way back, okay? My argument is that the temple certainly was standing. Why? Have you read Hebrews? The whole thing is, well, not the whole thing, but the central point is these metaphorical and midrashic arguments utilizing the temple as the basis of the argument. And we find no no destruction of the temple comments in there. Now, here's the thing. Hebrews has been described as a supersessionist book. In other words, it is the replacement of the Jewish people. It is the the ascension of Christianity. It is the doing away with the sacrificial system, the Jewish people, the Torah, the temple. Now, if that were the case, would it not bolster the author's argument immensely to say, oh yeah, and by the way, God blew up the temple and exiled all the Jewish people. I mean, that's something that if that's his point and he's writing after the destruction of the temple, even if he's not, even if it's that not his point, still you wouldn't leave that detail out. Also, in addition, Hebrews 8 9, we find that that the priestly service is described in present tense. And here is like the clincher. And this is going to become very important as we begin to understand the holy place and the holy of holies in the author's argument style. The Holy Spirit is signifying this, that the way into the holy place has not been disclosed while the outer tabernacle is still standing, which is a symbol for when? The present time. It's kind of hard like, to get around that. So he's, you see it. I don't even have to say any other words. It's that easy. Right? What we should read is, that was a sign, but now it's in rubble. It's in disarray. It is finished. God has opened a new chapter. Internal logic, common sense are working in our favor here. Right? So what have we learned? The book we're devoting part of our lives to studying, the book of Hebrews, is a mystery of sorts. There's no way around that. We don't know with confidence who wrote it. We don't know when it was written necessarily. We don't know where it was sent. And ultimately, we cannot even know with certainty right now why it was written. Next week, I want to. But the arguments that I've shown you today are, at the very least, capable of inserting reasonable doubt into any other thoughts, okay? So what I want to suggest to you in Hebrews has a history. Here's my conclusion. Hebrews is an apostolic book, possibly, I say probably, written by Barnabas, a Levite, familiar with the temple, 
to a community of believers the author knew and loved and desired to be with. And we showed in Acts 4 that Barnabas was very familiar with this community. To this community who lived in Jerusalem or at least Israel and conceivably were the Acts community some 30 plus years later. And as we know, this community were familiar with the temple and had been through some struggles with even greater difficulties and they were receiving this letter of exhortation from the author prior to the destruction of the temple in 70 as a word of encouragement to hold fast to their faith in Messiah Yeshua, which is the integral part of the why, okay? And so we've already demonstrated over the weeks preceding this that the ideas promoted by traditional interpretations aren't valid. Why sacrifices happen, what they can and cannot do, what death, Yeshua's death, burial, and resurrection, didn't, that they didn't end the system of Levites, temple sacrifices, why the community of believers continued living after his resurrection in a temple-centric way. So that's my conclusion that undergirds the rest of what we're going to talk about in terms of the author's why. And there is still some additional historical context that we need to look at last week, but it won't be an exhaustive history lesson like this. Now, last thing, notice, I did not present any counterpoints because that would be really boring. You can do that on your own. There's a midrash down the hall, a study. There's the Eusebius is in there. Tertullian's in there. The history of the early Christian church is in there. You can go and critique me all day, but this is my theory. And so I present it to you with confidence. Next week, the why of the book of Hebrews. Shabbat Shalom. We hope you enjoyed the weekly teaching. We'd love to hear from you with a comment, a prayer request, or questions you might have. We believe the mission and message of Messianic Judaism is something the world needs now. If you enjoy these teachings, would you consider financially supporting the work of Nachamu Ami by visiting our website at www.makinmessianic.com and clicking the Give Online button in the upper right corner. Thank you again for listening. 